On today's episode, we're going to talk to my co-host. He's going to be a guest. It's Brad Feld. We're going to talk about mental health, what triggers it, and how to deal with it. We'll hear his story, how he learned to prioritize himself, take care of himself. It involves sleep and some stories of total exhaustion. You're not going to want to miss it. Brad has so much advice to help others and how you can help others that might be dealing with mental health issues. Stay tuned. That's coming right up. Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone, and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo-jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities and some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Brad, awesome to have you on as a guest. This is super cool. We're going to focus today on mental health and your own personal journey with it. It's been a while since you've hosted an episode here on the Give First podcast. What have you been up to? Well, I've been up to being me and enjoying existence on this particular planet that we happen to inhabit right now. Thank you for picking up all the slack on Give First. I got totally burnt out on public-related stuff and just decided to take a break from it for a while. Basically, most of this year, I started dipping back into it some when the second edition of Startup Boards came back out, and I did some podcasts and some stuff around that. But for the first half of the year, I just took a break from it, and uh, I appreciate you as my co-host and good friend carrying on without me. Well, it's good to have you on. And uh, by the way, that second edition of Startup Boards is a jump. It was uh, an awesome sort of reread, but a lot of new stuff in there. So congrats on getting that one out. Thanks. It was the joy of yet another book, which as far as I can tell, is just a soul-crushing grind. (laughs) Once you get past the idea of, I'm going to write a book, and then it just becomes a soul-crushing grind to get done with it. How many are there now? Do you even know? Seven. Seven. Okay. Incredible resource, as are your other books. So you say you took a break. You know, look, people listening, obviously, last few years have been kind of weird. You know, pandemic and the topic today is kind of mental health. So I want to tee you up. I know you've always been good and thoughtful about taking a break when you need to. I've known you for a long time and I've seen you go through that a few times, prioritizing you and, and Amy when you need to. And so I want to sort of give you the floor to talk about your own journey with mental health. There's a lot of people I know out there are struggling with that right now or might in the future. So I want them to understand your story and how you've evolved and dealt with it over time. Well, I'll walk through it linearly over time from the past to today and I imagine some people have heard different flavors of this story that are listening. Hopefully each time there's something new that I say or that is in the story that's a worthwhile pickup. But let me just start with the chronological narrative, which is I started my first company when I was in college and I really hadn't ever thought about anything around mental health or anxiety probably till my mid-20s. And when I reflect on sort of looking back when I was a teenager and a young adult, I had a lot of anxiety And a lot of it was channeled in very productive ways, right? It it was part of what was the engine of my own energy in terms of the things that I did. 
not the only thing, but a contributor to it. But there was a lot of anxiety that was floating around that really culminated in my mid-20s in a very significant depressive episode. And that depressive episode ended up lasting about two years. And, and it happened at the confluence of three things. One was I had my first marriage blew up. And we didn't have kids. We were in our early-ish 20s. So it was more like just a really, really bad breakup of a relationship that I'd had since high school. Second was that I was in a PhD program while I was running my first company. And I was very ineffective and unhappy. I was, a, I was a shitty PhD student. I was spending all my time running my company. But I had a lot of identity wrapped up in this notion of being sort of a high achiever, including a high achiever in academia and the program I was part of. And that, that blew up. I like to say with the benefit of hindsight, I got kicked out of the PhD program. You know, it was not quite that dramatic, but I, it makes me feel better to dramatize it, to think of them like the bouncers carrying me out of the bar and throwing me on the middle of the road and the car swerving to just miss me. That's kind of what I felt like at the time. Definitely a cooler story. <laughs> and, and then the third was, my, while my business was going quite well, I was very bored. The work was the same day in, day out. The problems were the same. I wasn't really learning that much, and I just really was bored. And the intersection of those three things created this very almost cataclysmic depressive episode. And I was really fortunate that there were a few people around me at the time that were, I wouldn't say directly helpful in terms of what was going on with me, but were supportive in ways that each of them were able to contribute. And that led me to ending up going into therapy. The therapist I had was my doctoral advisor's therapist. And I was terrified of therapy. I felt huge shame. The whole idea that as a CEO of a company, you know, the, the mantra that got thrown around for a while is that you can't show any weakness. But the whole idea that as a, not just as a CEO, but sort of as a person I was struggling with this stuff was really difficult for me on top of what I was already struggling with. If you add on to that, it turns out I was quite functional when I was depressed. So I was able to get up in the morning and go to work and do my work. I probably didn't have as much energy as I normally did. If you knew me well, you might say, yeah, he's a little off. He's not quite as enthusiastic about things. And if you didn't know me very well, you'd be like, eh, I don't know. everything seems fine. And I would put my energy into work and I would come home at the end of the day and I'd have nothing. I'd just be uninterested in doing anything. And my, you know, ends of the days post-work were laying on the couch, not even watching TV, just laying on the couch, staring at the ceiling. I'm a huge reader. I love to read. Couldn't read anything. And, you know, on and on, just no desire to have any social interaction with people, any connection to people. I just sort of had my work and I got up in the morning and I did my work and I got home at the end of the day and I sort of made it through to the next morning and repeated. Through that experience in my mid-20s, again, a lot of shame around being depressed, a lot of shame around seeing a therapist, a lot of shame around taking medication. I was afraid to talk to anybody about the different medications that I took. I had a clinical diagnosis that came out of it, which was very helpful to me intellectually. And that clinical diagnosis was obsessive compulsive disorder. And it helped me start to intellectualize what was going on, didn't help solve and address the fundamental issue of how I was feeling. But let me put some framing on it in a way that I could respond to it. And ultimately was very effective at helping me not necessarily eliminate the anxiety, but start to have effective responses when I was feeling different ways. So that was my 20s. Eventually, that feeling of depression passed, just lifted. 
I couldn't give it a like, and then this happened and then everything was better. It, it definitely was not that. And there was a period of time pretty deep into it, probably a year, year and a half into this depressive episode. Again, work was fine. Business was fine. But I would describe it looking backwards as the complete absence of joy. There was no joy in anything that I was doing in any way I was doing it. One day it lifted. And in that period, maybe a year and a half in, I was worried that this is how I was going to feel the rest of my life. So there was definitely that moment of real discomfort with the idea that this was how I was going to feel. And that's an important piece that I'm going to come back to. But in that moment, you, you said, you know, one day, but do you remember anything around that time that was, you know, particularly fun, joyful, memorable, or really it just sort of went away? You have no idea why. It just kind of went away. And then I noticed that I wasn't feeling depressed anymore. And then you had more joy in life a little bit, at least. Uh, things, were, things had color again. They weren't just gray, right? And, you know, by the way, it wasn't that I was like mopey dopey all the time and everything, you know, every, everybody interacted with me, you know, was just like a total downer. I mean, I was responsible for generating all the new business for our company and I generated a lot of new business. (laughs) I had a lot of interactions that were social interactions in a work context and I was effective at it, but it just wasn't like an absence of joy. Like I was just doing the shit that I didn't really want to do. And before you get into the the rest of the journey, was there any predisposition to this this been something that anyone in your family has struggled with? Or do you have any idea? I just got my 23andMe results and I'm pouring over them. Like, is there something that people have in their background or is it this could happen to anyone anytime? Well, I didn't know at the time anything in the context of that. In my family, the idea of depression was not a thing or even, even really talking about anxiety was not a thing we did. And so I didn't really have any awareness of the mental health or emotional struggles of my lineage per se. When I understood that I had obsessive compulsive disorder, which when I was diagnosed was in the early 1990s, it was not particularly well understood and it was not well understood how to treat. I was fortunate in that the psychiatrist I had was one of the areas that he focused on was related to OCD. And so he was quite interested in it. And again, the intellectual element of it was powerful. But when I looked back at my teenage years after I had been through this episode, was on the other side of it, was no longer struggling with depression, but still struggled with some of the anxiety and the OCD activity that I was still working through. It was very, very clear to me that as a teenager, I had OCD. The characteristics of it were crystal. There were three letters that were never put next to each other in my family. Nobody had ever talked about it. Nobody had ever said, Brett, why do your shoes always have to be straight in the closet a certain way? And why why are you constantly turning the pencils around so that the erasers and the points are aligned with each other and they're parallel to the side of the desk? And why, when I walk in your room, is everything in neat little piles a certain way? Like It was not a part of the context of my adolescent time or even my college time, but again, looking backwards on it, it was super obvious. Yeah that those things were going on. And and for somebody that doesn't know what OCD is, you know, we all have obsessions and we all have compulsions and it's used as a sort of tagline. People say, oh, I've got OCD in the same way that people say I have ADD. And a lot of people that say I have ADD don't have ADD. And a lot of people who say they have OCD don't. It's actually not that helpful. You have characteristics that you might identify with those things, but you actually don't have the clinical disorder. We all have obsessions. We all have compulsions. The problem is not that. The problem is that you have an inappropriate linkage between them. So here would be an example. 
if I don't leave the house a certain way in the morning, my mother will die. If I don't shut my computer down a certain way at the end of the day, we will lose a client. Mm -hmm. If I don't touch all the cracks in the street on pieces of sidewalk that have a cigarette on them in Boston, which is not every one of them, but a lot of them, then inappropriate bad thing will happen. Right, it's that linkage that's really the problem, and it's the individual behaviors are separate. So, like, or I see cigarettes on the street, I straighten them. As long as I'm not having the thought, I'm just a, doing a weird thing with cigarettes on the street. Totally. I mean, when I watch Florida State play football, I sit on the couch in a certain spot, and I feel like if I move, they're going to lose. But that's that's it. Nobody's going to die. I'm not going to right. business. It's it's a superstition more than. That's right. And so it's sort of taking that superstitious problem and turning it into this anxiety linkage thing, which, by the way, really ultimately is about trying to control your environment. So, again, separate the intellectual from the way it feels. Like, it was helpful for me in that time period to dig into it intellectually just based on how my brain works and how I like to think about things. However, that was not the thing. Understanding it intellectually didn't solve any of the problems, but it just allowed me to process it the next layer down. But back to the question you asked, now there was no real systematic path to feel better. I just realized one day I felt better, and that was awesome. So after the mid-20s, I assume you had some other waves or periods in your life. Were they as long? Were they shorter? And do you always know you're in it? Do you know how to get out of it when you are in it? Yeah, I think that the two profound ones for me were one that happened after 9-11. 9-11 coincided with really the acceleration of the collapse of the internet bubble. So the internet bubble was already bursting by then, but it really was still sort of hanging on. And then 9-11 was sort of the shatter point for lots of things in our society, not just the internet bubble. And this will be a recurring theme. I was so exhausted when 9-11 happened because of all of the shit show that was my work. And I was exhausted from not just the pain of trying to deal with all these companies failing and just figuring out how to survive that, but also from the prior three or four or five years of the inflation of the internet bubble, which was an incredibly exciting but also extraordinarily intense time. Worked huge hours, traveled all over the country. At that point, I was doing some international investing as well, so I had some international stuff. I was just exhausted, physiologically crushed. And then 9-11 happened, and I had taken a red eye to New York the night before in the morning of 9-11. So I was in Midtown when the first plane crashed in the tower. I was fast asleep at the Benjamin Hotel. Hmm. I didn't have any meetings till noon. But I sort of woke up in this disoriented state between the first tower and the second tower falling with nobody, you know, like Amy was on her way to the airport to fly to New York because we were going to spend a week in New York and then go on to Paris for her birthday. Like just the emotional stuff going on around that and this desire to get back to Boulder as quickly as possible, all of that cascaded and triggered a pretty intense three-month depressive episode. However, most of the U.S. was really affected by 9-11 in a dramatic way. And I think there was an enormous amount of sadness, depression, misery, reevaluate of some stuff. So that depressive episode sort of, I, I like to say, hidden plain sight. Like I was super depressed, but so was a lot of other people. So, you know, so what? 
The next one, and the one that I think was really transformative for me in the context of talking about it, and by the way, in, even in that one, I still had a lot of shame around being depressed. And, you know, like I had to go get up and go do my work and hang in there and all that sort of thing. In 2013, this was the one that was real, the real change for me. And by the time I got to this depressive episode, I wasn't feeling the stigma associated with depression as much. I also wasn't afraid this was how I was going to feel forever. And after I processed the 2013 depressive episode, I realized I'd had lots of other shorter depressive episodes. I used to talk about how I'd just be exhausted and totally burnt out every year at the end of the year. David, you've had to deal with this. I'm not good at Christmas. I'm not good at December. Yeah, um, or January. Yeah. By Thanksgiving, I'm like, I'll see, I'll see you on the other side in the new year. And I, again, I'm available and around, but I'm not interested in going to the parties and I'm not interested in having stuff with other families and shit like that. And I used to just say that was the end of the year. I was just burnt out and tired and need a break. That eh, wasn't what was going on. I was getting depressed every year at the end of the year. And one of the pieces was I was just exhausted. And that was kind of the time frame that I could use to recharge, but the exhaustion was what was triggering the depression. The 2013 depressive episode, in a lot of ways, came out of nowhere. Work was going great. Foundry was doing well. Techstars was growing and was super exciting. I had a lot of fun and interesting things. Sure, there were some companies that were messed up in my world, but not too many of them. Amy and I were doing awesome in our relationship, really happy place. You know, I was in good shape. I had run earlier in 2012, uh, a 50-mile race. Mm -hmm. um, so I trained as much as I trained for anything and did this huge 50-mile race, which was a big accomplishment. Had a great summer, was in incredible shape. And then I had a series of things happen. I had a very scary bike accident on a trip that ended up being, you know, stitches and lost a tooth and stuff like that. Nothing damaging, but it was scary. It was a real, I like to say, 15 or 20 seconds of abject terror followed by a bunch of pain <laughs> and discomfort, but ultimately nothing tragic. But I didn't really take care of myself after that. I didn't really recover. And I didn't really recover from the 50-mile race. And then on and on, kind of kept schlepping myself all over the place. And same thing, I got exhausted. In the end, I had a kidney stone and I ended up having a surgery at the end of the year. And I thought I was better. Like I thought I was, okay, I rested. I had the surgery and da 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 I ended up going to Comdex in early 2013 in January. And within two hours of getting to Las Vegas, I was in my hotel room with the curtains closed and the pillow over my head. I, I just That is normal for Comdex, though. Too. Yeah, I know. I understand. That's, but usually like the next morning after you've had the all-night party at Comdex. This was like after I checked into the hotel. And the point of that one is here, it was pretty easy for me to intellectualize that it was exhaustion and that I just physiologically and physically wore myself out. And that's what tipped me over into depression. But there was a bunch of other stuff in that as well. But this time, one of the big differences was I just didn't feel the same stigma. I've been writing on my blog for a long time. So I just started writing about it. I wrote about the experience I had. You probably remember those blogs. Like I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't uh, whiny about it. Oh, woe is me. I'm depressed. Please come talk to me and make me feel better. I was just sort of exploring the experience out loud and not feeling shame, not being like, I need to hide this. I need to like somehow show everybody I'm okay. And as part of that, I did a bunch of, things, some experiments, but also just some tactical things that helped a lot as I sorted out what was going on with, in my case, depression and anxiety, but sort of more broadly, all of the stresses that founders feel and that I was feeling in the context of that. And in that, I had many, many people 
more than 100 people. Most of them, their names would be recognizable by the people that are listening here, if I just went down the list, who reached out to me. And in a lot of cases, I was the first person they felt comfortable, other than maybe a spouse or a partner or a therapist, reaching out and talking to about their own struggles. And in some cases, I was the first person, period, where they hadn't been comfortable talking to a partner or parents or therapist or anyone else. And those conversations were very profound to me, partly because I was still in this depressive state, right? It wasn't an intellectual exploration of how mental health works. I was struggling and I'm open about my struggle. And I'm now talking to other people who are either struggling or have struggled and sort of navigated through it and relating at the emotional level versus an intellectual level about what they were going through and what I was going through. And I came out of that with a very, very deep conviction that eliminating the stigma associated with mental health, especially in entrepreneurship, but broadly written society, was important. And important to try to, as part of what I did, just eliminate the stigma where some of that is just telling the stories, just saying, look, you can be successful, you can have a successful life. And at the same time, we're just big bags of chemicals. And sometimes the chemicals don't mix quite right. And sometimes the bag leaks. And sometimes somebody tosses a new chemical into the system or you inadvertently get whatever. And sometimes, you know, the chemicals, are, uh, I, this, and now I'm torturing the analogy, but <laughs> the chemicals evolve uh, and become new things. But just like all of these things are not controllable. And when you're in a position of high stress, which all entrepreneurs are, or at least I think all entrepreneurs are in a position of high stress. That's part of the experience. There's lots of different ways that it comes out. And some of those ways are productive. And some of those ways are very non-productive. Some are self-destructive. But all of them are worth contemplating and understanding as you know you try to live your one life in the best way you can. So I know, you know, speaking of stories that you have shared in the past about this, but also in the Techstars Entrepreneur Toolkit, you told your story, but there are others telling their stories and some tactical advice there. If you go to the Techstars Entrepreneur's Toolkit, it's a video series, it's number 20, Entrepreneurs and Mental Health, another good resource for people to check out. But I, I want to switch, Brad, to maybe some tactical stuff, entrepreneurs listening, maybe investors, mentors out there listening. Your 25-year-old self. What would you say to him today with the benefit of hindsight? What would you have done differently if you if you could know what you know now? And probably a couple of things that are easy to absorb. One would be, hey, kid, take care of yourself. Prioritize yourself. I mean, a thing that has consistently happened as, does not happen anymore in a significant way. I mean, it happens occasionally. But it, for me, when I was younger, I prioritized everyone else but myself. And some of it was feeling responsible and feeling like this sort of, I'm doing my job by being responsible for everybody else and everything else. But a lot of it was just not approaching it from the standpoint of what I wanted. And this manifests itself lots of different ways. It's not just, you know, okay, you should go spend an hour each day doing something that's just for you. Although that's a tactic. I'll give a totally different example, which is I created a self-identity for much of my adult life as that guy who woke up at five o'clock in the morning, no matter what time zone I was in. You probably remember some of this because it overlapped with, it, it, this stopped in 2013. Oh, I was still awake, depending on time zone, because I was- You'd be awake and I'd be getting up, but it was predictable. Like, oh, he's in New York. He's going to be up at three o'clock in the morning, Boulder time. No problem. And 
I just created this self-image and this narrative around myself. And I had a lot of ego attachment to it. And I would talk about it and, and I would do it. Didn't matter whether I got one hour of sleep the night before or 10, I got up at five o'clock in the morning and the alarm went off and off I went. And I solved it by doing two things. One was sleeping on airplanes or pretending to sleep on airplanes, thinking I could sleep on airplanes. And I traveled a lot, so I theoretically got a lot of sleep. Turns out that that was all shitty sleep. And the other was I binge slept on the weekends. And you probably remember some of this, like it's two o'clock in the afternoon and I'm still asleep on a Saturday afternoon because I'm just crashed. When I got depressed in 2013, I decided to not use an alarm clock and stopped setting an alarm clock. And I started my day's meetings at 11. And Amy had standing instructions that if I wasn't awake by 10.30 to wake me up. I also started going to bed much earlier. And for six months, I slept at least 12 hours a night for six months. And I say slept, I was in bed, right? So I go to, I go to bed at 8, 8.30, 9. Again, I'm depressed, so I'm going to bed early. I'm not necessarily falling right asleep because it's hard to fall right asleep when you're depressed, but I would be in bed a good solid 12 plus hours for six months. After a couple of months and I'm like, yeah, I'm not laying in bed because I can't get out of bed to go do a thing. I'm laying in bed because I'm just really fucking tired because I haven't been taking care of myself. So there's a whole bunch of flavors of that. I would say prioritize yourself and take care of yourself. The next is most people, even when they're trying to be helpful when I was depressed, were not helpful. A lot of the shake it off, a lot of the you'll be fine, you know, comforting, patting somebody on the back. A lot of the, what can I do to be helpful, which I find profoundly unhelpful because I'm depressed. I can't make a fucking decision about anything, nor do I want to. And now you're asking me to tell you what you can do to help me. That's not helpful. And so the advice would be, don't listen to all the people around you who are giving you advice. Except for me, your future self talking to your younger self. And, right? and perhaps any doctor that you interact so, with. Yeah, for sure. Do I mean, my, the, the people that I ended up listening to were my therapist and that was it. However, recognize that there's a lot of people around you who are concerned about you and that it's not your responsibility to solve their concern, but your awareness that they're concerned could be helpful to you. It did help that even though Amy wasn't saying, do this, do that, it was helpful to know that she was concerned about me and to know that she was there if I needed something. It was very helpful that my first business partner, Dave Joke, who had to deal with me being depressed in my 20s, would periodically show up at my office, and I'm sure he coordinated with my assistant for when I was available in the afternoon, and say, hey, I'm here, you want to go for a walk? And actually, he wouldn't say you want to go for a walk, he'd say, hey, I'm here, let's go for a walk. Because he knew I liked to just walk around, it was nice outside, and we would go for a walk. Sometimes we wouldn't say a word to each other, we'd just go for a walk for an hour. But I knew that he cared about me. So sort of search for those moments versus sort of repel everyone who is showing up and being concerned about you, but not in a way that's helpful. And then the last advice I would say is experiment with all the inputs. I think we lose sight often of how much things impact us. And those inputs would be things like the food you eat, the sleep you get, what you drink, what drugs you do, and what you drink is not just alcohol, but caffeine. And here's an example. I thought I was drinking too much coffee, so I switched to tea <laughs> at one point. And I think I was drinking like 20 black teas a day. And I 
said this to, I can't remember now whether it was a, a psychologist or a doctor, and the doctor just broke out laughing, whoever it was, and said, well, you know, 20 cups of tea a day is about seven or eight good cups of coffee. Yeah, well, at least you switch to Mountain Dew or something. What? You know, like, I thought tea was okay. Um, which, again, intellectually, I probably knew it wasn't, but I was, like, just knowing that that's going to set you off. What are those things? And then play around with them and find out what are more helpful zones. And they're, they're not just, when I say inputs, they could be things like exercise. They could be things like how much interaction you have with other people. Just, but experiment when you're in a depressive state versus lock yourself down in a way or go the other direction. Okay, I'm depressed, so the only way I can get through the evening is to have a bottle of wine. Well, that might actually be not the thing that's helping you navigate through. Brad, awesome. I want to thank you, as always, for sharing your story and some thoughts about you know how others think about what you've been through and what they might be dealing with. I know I speak for a lot of people listening. You've shared so much so openly you've been part of the movement of you know publishing like how the secrets of venture capital work and how term sheets work and this is just another example of that right i think when you're willing to talk about these hard things and put them out there it, it helps so many other people so i know people listening would want to thank you for that so i'll do it for them <laughs> um, and say thanks for you're welcome david and all the people that you're being a proxy for awesome thanks brad my pleasure Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First. <laughs>